Good morning, everyone. And welcome to worship here at Belhelvey today. It's nice to see some uh, returning faces with us again this morning. It's great to see you back again. Um, just a few wee announcements before we uh, begin. Uh, next Sunday is our all-age worship. So rather than meeting uh, here in the church, we meet across in the Forsyth Hall. And we'd encourage you to come and enjoy that. It's a more uh, informal, uh, relaxed service. The idea is that uh, young families can come with the kids and they're in for the whole service. And it's, let's just say it's more of a rammy. Um, but it's good fun. So uh, these are, we had our first about a month ago and it went really well. So we'd encourage you to come along to that service next Sunday if you're able to. Um, hopefully you've got notice through Facebook or through email, or maybe if you were here last Sunday, that today we are taking up a, a retiral offering for uh, aid relief in Ukraine. Now we have been encouraging folk, if you're online or just want to make a phone donation, to do so through the DEC uh, campaign. The government are going to double all the giving to that campaign. But in the event that you haven't got that facility or you just want to give some cash, there's a wee box here just at the back. There's the usual collection plate, but then beyond that, for, sorry, for church stuff, then beyond that is a, a wooden box and it's got a sign on it. Uh, saying Ukraine collection and if you want to give some cash today the church will process that and give it to the DEC campaign in the name of the church so that will that will also get to the same campaign so please do give as generously to that as you can either today or in your own way um, a wee word of congratulation um, my friends Facebook told me yesterday that Gordon and Anne Sheeran were celebrating their 45th wedding anniversary on Saturday. So I think we should give them a wee round of applause for that. <laughs> Must have been a child bride, Anne, that's all I'm saying. Well done, congratulations. Uh, and just to invite you to stay for teas and coffees after the service in the hall, if you're able to. So those are all our announcements, so let's worship God in the words of our opening hymn, which is number 645, I'm not ashamed to own my Lord. Let's worship God together.
Let's pray together now. Father, today, the first day of the week, is a day of new beginnings. On the first day of the week, you began your work of creating life out of nothing. On the first day of the week, you raised Jesus and began your work of creating new life out of death. On the first day of the week, you sent your Spirit and began your work of creating new life in everyone. Today, help us live as people who have begun again. To live today and every day with the life which comes to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, we thank you that every day you give us new opportunities to put right what is wrong. To correct the faults in our character. To do some duty that we've neglected and demonstrate in action our trust in you. But we confess that we let many opportunities slip us by. We're so preoccupied that we don't see them, or when we do see them, we're too timid or lazy to grasp them. Forgive us these feelings. Make us alert to see the fresh opportunities that you're always giving us. And grant us the courage and the will to seize and to use them. Lord, hear us because we make all these prayers in the name and in the spirit of your Son, Jesus Christ. He taught his disciples to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our reading this morning is taken from Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 13, and reading verses 31 to 35, and Ian McKenzie is going to read for us. The Lament Over Jerusalem At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you, and I tell you, you will not see me 
until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Thanks, Ian. We're going to sing again. It's uh, number 651, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord. And I think we'll sing this one through twice, Alan, and we'll remain seated to sing. Let's pray together now. Father, looking in on what we do here on a Sunday, I wonder so often if the world thinks that this is escapism, a way out of our troubles, 
that we wish for, a way of hiding from the reality of how things are, and yet that couldn't be further from the truth. We gather here today because in the context of all that's going in, going on in our lives and in the world, we want to know what is real. We want to know where there is hope. We want to know where the end lies. And we have come to believe that the end lies in you, that you are the alpha, but you are also the omega, the beginning and the end. And that all that happens in between for good or for ill you are working out within that a good end for your human family. We struggle to believe that sometimes, Lord, in the face of everything that's going on in the world. And yet we trust in the character of the God in whose name we gather here today. And we ask that you would give us vision and sustenance and hope in these difficult, difficult times for humanity. So here are prayers. For we ask them all in Christ's name. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. I wonder if, like me, you found it very difficult over the last two and a bit weeks to watch the news coming out of Ukraine, even though you know that you need to. We need to know what's going on. It's a wee bit like watching a bully hitting and hitting and hitting a weaker child in the playground until his face is pulp. But you can't wade in and stop it because the bully isn't just carrying a gun, he's carrying a detonator that can blow up the entire school if he wants to. And so we have to stand back waiting for sanctions to have some effect, waiting for Russians with some kind of a conscience to turn on their leadership. And meanwhile, days of carpet bombing are sending parts of Ukraine back to the Stone Age, while terrified families are cowering in basements and subway stations and wondering how long the supplies of food and water are going to last. Something like two million refugees, mostly women and children, have fled to find safety in countries that are willing to shelter them. And I have to say the UK is not doing terribly well there. But having got out, they are probably the lucky ones. But remarkably, there's also a stream of Ukrainians traveling in the other direction. Something like 140,000 folk, mostly men, have returned to fight for their homeland. And you've seen the pictures, girlfriends and wives holding on to their partners in tearful farewells, crying children clutching on to their dads, not knowing if they're ever going to see them again, many of them too young to even have an, an understanding of what's going on. We can only imagine the courage that these folk are showing, returning home to a war that the odds say they have no hope of winning and we have to stand alongside them in prayer in the days ahead asking that their efforts won't be in vain early on in the game of thrones novels and in the tv series one of the characters bran 
asks his father if a man can still be brave even when he feels afraid. And his dad said, that's the only time a man can be brave, when he's afraid. When the odds are against you, when common sense says that the safest thing to do is to get as far away from the danger as possible, it takes immense courage to take on the powers that be. Thinking about that this week made me remember Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a a pastor in Germany who was appalled at the way the established German church capitulated to Nazi ideology. And Bonhoeffer became a leader in what was known as the Confessing Church, training young pastors secretly to minister faithfully and generously in the gospel way and not in the Nazi way in those awful times. And Bonhoeffer eventually risked his life and indeed gave his life by taking part in a plot to assassinate Hitler. I remembered Martin Luther King this week advocating nonviolent resistance against the endemic racism that plagued the America of his day, aiming to save not just his own people, but also incredibly generously the souls of those who were hell-bent on oppressing them. And I remember that unknown student in this photograph that many of us remember from the protests in Tiananmen Square in 1989, an iconic image of defiant resistance in the face of huge odds. It takes courage to stand up against the powers that be, especially when doing so is likely to cost you your life. So with that in mind, let's turn to this morning's gospel reading. And it starts with a group of Pharisees coming to tell Jesus that Herod has got it in for him and that he'd best be moving on. And if we're paying attention, that should puzzle us a wee bit because we don't often hear about the Pharisees doing Jesus any favours. This could have been a ploy, it could have been an attempt to get this troublemaker out of the locality, but looking at it with a more generous eye, it's worth remembering that there were some good, more open-minded Pharisees around, not least Nicodemus, who came to visit Jesus secretly at night for long chats and was one of those who helped with the care of his body after his death. And there were other similarly-minded folk within the party of the Pharisees. And that reminds us that it's never good to homogenize any one group of people as though they all think the same. And I think that's relevant when we think about Russia at the moment. There are many within Russia who are deeply unhappy about what's happening in their name. I know it's a wee bit of an aside I'm maybe a bit light for this sermon, but I enjoyed a comment that was made by the Celtic manager Ange Postacoglu a few weeks ago when he was quizzed about Celtic buying four Japanese players since he arrived. He's an Australian, so he knows the Japanese market well. And Ange said this, he says, we have to be careful about just saying four Japanese players. He said, these are four individuals. If you ever get the chance to meet them, you will see that they are totally different people totally different kinds of players. 
I get it because it seems like people who come from the same place are all the same. But I've run into all kinds of different Scots since I moved here, mate. Just because you're all Scots, it doesn't mean you're all the same. So let's watch out for that tendency within ourselves and others. Let's not be too quick to lump people together on the basis of some defining characteristic and assume that they all think and act the same way. But I digress. What matters more today is Jesus' response to the news that the Pharisees bring him. He's just been told that he's in grave danger from King Herod, literally grave danger, because his head is on the line, just as John the Baptist's had been. You might remember that by this stage, John's already been captured and executed by Herod. And the sensible thing, given what had happened to John, would be for Jesus to move on. But he's having none of it. Go and tell that fox, listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I finish my work. So what's Jesus getting at here? Well, maybe he's reminding Herod that he works with a power beyond Herod's comprehension or control. Jesus has demonstrated time and time again that he has divine power over evil spirits and over disease and over nature itself. Jesus exercises spiritual power. Herod only has worldly power to work with. But more than that, if you were paying attention, you might have picked this up. Jesus is pointing forward to something that Herod can't even begin to contemplate. That sometimes you win your greatest victories when you seem to be at your absolute weakest. On the third day, I finish my work. Now those words, the third day, should ring bells with us. What do those words point to? third day. Big voice. On the third day. Come on, you know this. Crucified, Crucified, but then on the third day. Raised. Raised. Every time you read those words, the third day. That's a resurrection reference in the scriptures in the New Testament. Jesus is flagging up what's still to come. That on the third day, having given himself over to death for our sake, he would rise again in the eternal victory of resurrection and all of the people had seen up to that point the little victories over evil spirits and over sickness and over prejudice and over injustice and over sin and over temptation those were just the glimmers of dawn compared to the full sun of his resurrection glory before which every power will have to submit every knee will have to bow and every tongue will have to confess that no king, no president, no oligarch is Lord, but only Jesus Christ. The Lion of Judah who overcomes all, but who does so in the guise of a slain lamb. Overcomes in the form of weakness. On the third day, 
I will finish my work, says Jesus. In other words, the world's story doesn't play out according to the whims and the fears of tin pot dictators, whoever they are, but according to what God has planned for his world, the destiny to which he is bringing it. God has plans for his world. There's a beginning and an end, an alpha and omega, and his plans are to redeem and restore his creation. And that's why Jesus has to keep walking to Jerusalem, as he says, that day, the next day, and the following day, because that's where the redemption will be won. He's already set his face to the capital, knowing full well what is going to happen to him there. Because when you take on the powers and you walk right into the seat of their power, it's only going to end one way. Jesus knows this. And he accepts it as part of the plan. When they're threatened, the powerful, those with vested interests, close ranks. And there's little doubt that Jesus was seen as a threat to the powers that ran Jerusalem. The imperial powers of Rome, who'd no appetite for another so-called Messiah stirring up trouble. Or the religious powers who worried that this maverick preacher was eroding their spiritual authority with the faithful. And the cultural powers who couldn't make money and keep fragile alliances together if this preacher kept stirring up the people. And so they acted together, all those with vested interests, to put him down, just like all the other prophets had been killed over the years. Every one of them who dared to speak truth to power. And Jesus walked right into all of this, knowing it would only ever end one way but knowing too that his death was the only thing that would finally disarm the powers once and for all and bring humanity the reconciliation with God that we all long for in our heart of hearts, whether we're prepared to admit that or not. A genuine reconciliation. That's what God wants for his human family, even his enemies. Is it wise or even possible to speak that word reconciliation in the light of what is happening in Ukraine? Certainly not in human terms. What Putin is engineering is monstrous and it's going to take generations to mend the damage that he's inflicting on that country and its people. This will never be forgotten. What we're seeing in Ukraine at the moment is both the best and the worst of human nature. The aggressors driven on by greed and fear are stopping at nothing to get what they want and mercilessly destroying everything in their path. And the resistance against huge odds are laying their lives in the line to protect their people and their homeland. And many of them are making the ultimate sacrifice as they do so. Greater love has no one than this, says Jesus, that a person lays down their life for a friend. 
Human history has taught us that tragically there are times when all we can do in the face of naked aggression is to fight it. But as Christians, we enter the fray remembering that in the economy of God, restitution and reconciliation is always a better end and the end that we should be hoping for, working for and praying for even as we struggle with those that we're fighting against. And the cross shows us what God himself is prepared to suffer in order to save even those who are his enemies. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, says Paul. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, in other words, his enemies, Christ died for us. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, says Jesus. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. Who's he speaking about there, do you think? Just the good people? The innocent ones? Or does his love go even further and desire against all odds the salvation of the very folk who are going to lead him to his death. Do they need saving too? I think we already know the answer to that. But they can only be saved from the consequences of all they are and all they've done if they are willing to admit that they need saved, that they need to change, and therein lies the problem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. You were not willing. We won't be able to bend the knee to Christ as we all eventually will do as long as we are anxiously fearfully guarding our own power and building our own kingdoms because there's no kind of place for that selfishness in the only kingdom that matters, the kingdom of God. And those who choose that path aren't excluded by God from the kingdom. They're excluding themselves by their choices until they finally come to their senses. Putin has made his choice for now. And others are paying an appalling price for it. But there will be a price for him to pay too. He has shown the world what he really is. An insecure, frightened, angry little man, as almost all bullies are. And from now on, he will be treated like that. Consigned to the outer darkness of the international community. But there will be a more severe judgment to come because everything we've done in this world will be brought into the light for a reckoning in the fullness of God's timing. Eleven years ago, when Osama bin Laden was killed, I wondered aloud, one Sunday morning, 
what God's judgment might look like for him. It was in the context of a discussion of hell and what hell might be like. And I imagined a long, long corridor with thousands of doors leading off it to the left and to the right. And behind every door was a husband or a mother or a sister or a son who was in one of those planes on 9-11 or working in one of the towers or enjoying a night out in one of the clubs that got bombed or traveling through one of the cities where the terrorists struck or serving in the armed forces when death came to them brutally, suddenly and obscenely. And I suggested that judgment for bin Laden might well involve a long walk down that corridor, spending as long as it takes in every single room with every single person hearing their testimony, learning the names of their families as they showed him photograph after photograph, sitting in silence before the awful monument of their pain and loss until he gets it into his atrophied heart that every single man and woman and child he had murdered bore the image of the God that he claimed to be serving. Could that kind of hell mend him? Could it mend Putin? God alone knows. But make no mistake, that kind of judgment is coming. Vladimir Zelensky quoted Churchill this past week when he addressed the UK Parliament. And as I prepared for today, I remember Churchill's maxim that Russia's intentions are a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. And that may indeed be so. It certainly seems to be so with Putin. But Christ reminds us that nobody gets to keep their secrets forever. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. All will be laid bare in the fullness of time before our God who judges and who judges justly. Where he finds us willing, may he have mercy on our souls and begin our mending as we choose to take our place beneath his wings. Our hymn is number 551, In Heavenly Love Abiding.
And Sharon is going to lead us now in our prayers for others. Let us pray. Faithful God, we are awed by Jesus' ability to keep focused on his goals, to hold fast to choices made years earlier, now that he could see what was, it was going to cost him. We give thanks for all who, like him, refuse to stop caring for others, even when they meet with nothing but cruelty and rejection. Thank you for the vulnerability that never left him, and was part of his strength. Such people are few and far between. Lord, and we pray for those, ourselves included, who find it hard to stick to your way of integrity and costly, unconditional love. We pray for parents trying to give their children a firm foundation in life, especially if they have not received what they needed early on to feel safe in the world. We think of the clear vision and idealism of so many of our young people and ask that they may not become too cynical. God of peace and justice, we pray for the people of Ukraine today. We pray for peace and the laying down of weapons. We pray for all those who fear tomorrow that your spirit will comfort them in the chaos and confusion of war. We pray especially for the children at risk and living in fear that you will hold and protect them as they seek refuge and safety, often separated from their fathers and not knowing when the family will be reunited. We pray for politicians and civil servants, for charity and aid workers, teachers and carers, all who choose a life of public service because they wanted to make the world a better place. Many are tired and disillusioned. Some have compromised their ideals. Some have put on a hard shell of indifference because the, because the cost of caring and not being able to help is just too high. We pray for those who, like the people whom Jesus saw in Jerusalem, have lost their sense of purpose and direction, those who have been let down all too often to trust again, those again, ourselves included, who cannot bear to watch or listen to the news because there is just too much suffering in the world too many problems that cannot be solved, too many people beyond our reach to help. Loving God, may your compassion break through all our defences. May we be willing this Lent and Easter season to take just one more risk for love's sake, and in the eternal battle between goodness and evil, love and hatred, life and death, may we discover with Christ and all his faithful servants that goodness and love and life are always stronger and will win out in the end. Amen. Thank you, Anne. We close our worship this morning in our final hymn, hymn number 362, Heaven Shall Not Wait.
go in peace to love and to serve the Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and forevermore. Amen.